Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined today uh, by a special guest, Dr. Timothy Bartell. Hello there. It has been a while since we've done one of our uh, Notes from the Quad episodes, but I'm uh, bringing in Dr. Bartell. He is the provost at the St. Constantine School. Uh, those of you who have been keeping up with my uh, wanderings and goings know that I the St. Constantine Schools now where I am working as well. So I'm glad to have a colleague and friend on uh, to talk a little bit today about Longfellow. Happy to be here. Uh, so Dr. Bartell is a poet by training in addition to uh, helping run the college here. Um, and so I'll, uh, he has his... Did, did some time uh, abroad. Want to tell a little folks about where you spent your time studying over there? Yeah, so I um, after after doing an MFA in poetry at Seattle Pacific University, um, I was encouraged by my professors that hey, you you approach poetry in kind of a scholarly way. What if, what if you go do a PhD? And so um, at St Andrews University in Scotland, they have a program called the uh, Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts. Um, and so I went out there and spent a couple of years. My wife and I lived in Edinburgh, and I would commute up by train, you know, looking at the North Sea on, you know, on a weekly basis. Uh, and I uh, studied Longfellow, who's an American poet, but particularly looked at um, how Longfellow is engaging with uh, the theological tradition, especially in the early church, uh, in his poem Evangeline. Um, and so it, we just had a lovely time there. It was a little sad to move back, but... Um, here, here we are back in Texas now. So, Yeah, so Tim and I were chatting a few weeks ago, and he was mentioning a couple other things uh, about Longfellow on education. Um, for those of you who don't know, Longfellow spent some time teaching at, at Harvard um, and talks a little bit about education in, in one of his unpublished kind of lectures. Um, but it, it's fun for me because I have a connection with uh, Evangeline myself. Um, being a native of South Louisiana, uh, my family was part of the diaspora that the the poem uh, captures. So we'll get into that a little bit and um, have a little fun fun with it. So, uh, Tim, you want to give us just a little bit uh, background on Longfellow for those who aren't as familiar with him? Yeah, so Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, um, I please stop me because I can go on and on and on. Uh, but uh, So his dates are 1807 uh, to uh, 1882. Um, so he... he spans the majority of the 19th century. Um, you know, he's born in a in an America that is really just starting out. Um, really, the, the, the War of 1812 um, happens outside his bedroom window. He remembers uh, kneeling on his bed with the open window in his Portland, Maine home, um, and he could see and hear the ship battles between the British and the Americans um, and the bay, you know, just down the road from his house. Um, and uh, he was also born in America that um, being a poet, especially a poet uh, as a career, was kind of unthinkable. Um, you know, his, his father was a lawyer, and so he grew up with these sort of... Uh, kind of wild notions that he was going to be a writer and his father always told him, you know, set your sights on the more practical pursuits. <laughs> you know, think, you think of John Adams' uh, famous uh, advice to his son that, you know, we're going to be statesmen and lawyers and politicians, you know, so our sons can be farmers, so their sons can be artists and writers. <laughs> um, and Longfellow definitely from his youth had his sights on, I, I want to get to that generation as quickly as possible. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, he went to Bowdoin College, um, where he was classmates with Hawthorne, 
um, and uh, got really into, into languages, both classical languages and modern languages. And actually, after, um, after his graduation, he kind of wheedled his way into convincing Bowdoin to hire him kind of on a, on a preliminary basis as a modern languages teacher. And he was so good at languages, they, they gave him a job, but they said, go to Europe and study for a couple of years, actually, you know, hang out with people who speak the modern languages, um, and then come back and we'll hold your job for you. Um, and so he did that. He spent, uh, he spent a couple of years, you know, in Germany, Spain, France, and really fell in love with the continent. Um, and so he came back, um, basically ready to help invent what we now know as the study of comparative literature um, and sort of the, the contemporary approach to modern languages in the American university. Before that, um, I think there was only one department, this was at Harvard, um, that offered modern languages. You know, in the early 1800s, it's classical languages. Um, you know, if you want to study French literature, you can't really do that in the American university before Longfellow. And so Longfellow actually wrote some of the first uh, modern languages textbooks that, uh, that we get in um, American history. And uh, along with, I think it's Tickner, uh, who's at, um, uh, who's at uh, Harvard, he, he kind of helps invent, like, how are we going to study Spanish, German, French? Um, and eventually he, he branched out into the Scandinavian languages. Um, but uh, his, his poetic career really really is created by a tragedy in his life. He didn't think he was going to be primarily a poet, especially a popular poet. His first publication, for example, was a translation um, of Manrique's um, coplas, which are um, long uh, lyric sequences from the Spanish. So he, he really kind of started his career as a translator and a sort of, uh, I don't know, ambassador of uh, Spanish poetry. Um, but as he's looking to kind of move up in his career, Harvard is looking to replace uh, their old uh, modern languages professor who wants to retire. And so they offer him a job, but they say, hey, look, go to, go to Europe again, brush up on your northern European languages. So Longfellow had just gotten married. He brings his new wife with him um, to Europe as they're traveling around um, uh, Scandinavia. Um, she... Um, tragically miscarries and dies of a complication from the miscarriage. And so what had seemed to be sort of this wonderful new, you know, job, new family ends really in despair and hmm. grief for Longfellow is in the late 1830s. Um, and Longfellow kind of, uh, he finds a few Americans, including uh, the poet William Cullen Bryant, who he looked up to as sort of one of the models of early American poetry, he kind of finds a few American families living in Germany while he's grieving and attaches himself to them and gets back to America finally, you know, having, having you know, been mentored and, and um, given advice by, by Bryant and starts his career at Harvard, just kind of a devastated and broken man. And one night, um, you know, this is kind of a famous story, but he he's thinking about poetry, he's thinking about literature, and he decides to write a poem that is from, from the young man giving advice uh, to the psalmist or to the poet. And so he writes, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things aren't as they seem. And that becomes the psalm of life, hmm. which gets published in the newspapers, quickly becomes a sort of, um, I don't know, 
surprise poetry hit. Um, I know we don't really have those anymore, uh, but that's that's Longfellow for you. And it Shark topper. Yeah, it gives him. I think it gives him the the confidence, and uh, Hawthorne encouraged him in his publishing his poetry as well. It gave him the confidence to, you know, publish his first book of poems. Um, he writes a lot of poems like that, kind of like a life is hard, but we can get through it. Um, and it launches his poetry career. And so from the late 30s, really to the end of his life, even though he continues his scholarship in, um, in translation, you know, he'll, he'll eventually translate the Divine Comedy in the 60s. Um, it's really that popular poetry published in newspapers that people read that's kind of a, um, you know, Longfellow feels like like your uncle or your or your best friend encouraging you from the page of the local newspapers, and that's how a lot of people um, kind of experienced Longfellow and came to really see him as a national treasure of poetry. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in the in the forties, he um, decides I don't want to just write short lyrics; I want to write narrative poetry. And Evangeline comes out of that, which we can kind of go into in more detail. Um, in a minute, but um, in the 50s, he publishes um, Courtship of Miles Standish, Song of Hiawatha. Um, by the uh, late 50s, early 60s, we have Paul Revere's Ride. Um, we have the Dante translation. And then in his later work in the 70s, um, he, turns to, um, he turns to writing verse plays. He has a play about the life of Michelangelo, a play about the life of uh, Judas Maccabees. Um, he has a few plays about... Um, like the Salem witch trials and um, and the persecution of the Quakers in New England, so a really broad and sort of wide range of interests. And by the time he died in 1882, his birthday was being celebrated as kind of an informal national holiday. Huh. Um, and um, so Long Longfellow, probably the most famous poet in America. Uh, a most famous American poet in the world in his lifetime, especially by the time you get to the 50s through the 70s. Interesting. Yeah, so Walt, Walt Whitman, he's there. People have heard of him sometimes, but Longfellow, tremendously popular beyond any other of the poets that we read uh, from that era. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things interesting about his life. One, I think we tend to forget often with some of these writers who we come to know and love, um, that a lot of them had day jobs, right? You know, he, uh, but, you know, it, we shouldn't be so surprised when we think about Tolkien and Lewis, obviously professors their entire life. Yeah. Longfellow's a professor a lot of his life and, and a translator. Um, you know, Dorothy Sayers wrote advertisements. You know? Yeah. The, the Guinness, uh, I, I have some of those Guinness um, uh, pint glasses that yes. have her, her uh, like, a, I don't know, advertisements for Guinness on them. Yeah, she worked funny. on the Guinness campaign for, like, a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Chesterton was a newspaper man. You mm -hmm. know, he was still writing, but not not the kind of things we tend to associate with him. Um, but it's good to be reminded of that, and good to be reminded that that probably influenced a lot of what they did write. Um, mm -hmm. The War of eighteen twelve happening right outside his window as a child, right? I mean, that's yeah. another interesting. Uh, interestingly, we'll get into Evangeline here, but another war that um, is pretty looms pretty large in the area of the country that's now or the uh, Acadia in South mm -hmm. Louisiana. I, growing up there, War of eighteen twelve, there's a big deal every year uh, ball for that in in oh. New Orleans, and so. Oh, cool. uh, oh well, uh, War of eighteen twelve, and it's the battle. Of, yeah, the, the battle there in New Orleans is pretty yeah. famous. Um, and so all those things kind of come to bear on, on these things that last like Evangeline, which is pretty interesting. Um, that I want to talk, we'll talk more about kind of his work in education a little bit later, uh, but uh, let's, let's jump into Evangeline here. Um, uh, 
for those of you that don't know, uh, it's a it's a story that um, a tale that was he heard and and he another I think Hawthorne also heard mm-hmm. uh, in bits and snippets from different people who were part of this uh, what's called the Acadian diaspora, uh, the French colonists that were that were kind of shoved out by the British um, from uh, kind of the Nova Scotia area primarily of, of Canada. Um, and many of those settlers eventually found their way to South Louisiana. Um, and there's a whole region named for them, uh, Acadia. Uh, and it's also where we get the term Cajun kind of as a derivative of that. So, um, Tim, uh, I, I, like I said, I personally have some connection, which is kind of fun for me. Um, my, I have an uncle who did a lot of genealogical work, uh, on our family decades ago and the Rene LeBlanc that appears in the text, his his father, who's also named Rene LeBlanc, uh, um, brought the family to Port Royal, and he was my seven greats grandfather. So the Rene in the play, yeah. actually the seven, he would be eight. The the Rene in the play, his brother Claude is my direct uh, descendant. But they were all part of this diaspora. They they um, Claude never made it to all the way to Louisiana. He's actually one of his kids, but his brother did, and so. Mm-hmm. This whole area is influenced by this. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, um, you brought another book with you about kind of yeah. how this was pieced together. Yeah, so, you know, Evangeline, when it was published in 1847, it was, it was sort of um, fascinating people for a couple reasons. First of all, you know, it was one of the first long narrative poems that was popular in American history. Um, but also, people immediately became fascinated with the historical background. Mm. Um, you know, this is... Um, you know, we, we have these, uh, these very sympathetic uh, French uh, uh, settlers in, in Nova Scotia who are driven away ruthlessly by the British. You know, Americans love when <laughs> British are bad guys. Um, and, and, you know, then they settle in Louisiana and the character, the main character, Evangeline, ends up in Philadelphia by the end of the story. So there's a little bit of this, you know, kind of journey across North America. Mm-hmm. And people became fascinated with, you know, you know, is this a true story? You know, uh, how dare the British do this? You know, <laughs> a, a, a real sympathy with um, the plight of the Acadians. And so um, actually uh, two... Uh, Two of Hawthorne and Longfellow's, um, uh, I think it's son and nephew, or maybe both nephews, Manning Hawthorne and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Dana, um, they put together. Um, uh, let me find the date on this. This is the '40s, so it, it would be it would be uh, grand grandchildren and grandnephews. Um, but they put together a book called "The Origin and Development of Longfellow's Evangeline," where they kind of tried to trace, um, you know. Where did Hawthorne hear this story? Where did Longfellow hear this story? And as far as I can tell, there, um, Hawthorne and Longfellow heard this story in different versions from a lot of different places. And even just talking to you, Brandon, it seems like you know the the Acadian community in Louisiana preserves memory mm-hmm. of Longfellow's knowledge beyond what the scholars do. Um, and so as the kind of official version, and I, I wrote a book about Evangeline um, called Glimpses of Her Father's Glory. Um, but um, in, in my book, um, I basically just give the standard version, which is Longfellow's at a party with Hawthorne. Hawthorne has a friend or maybe a cousin who's a, um, a Reverend Connolly. He's an he's a Anglican priest. And Connolly has this story he heard um, about the 
expulsion of the Acadians, and there's this couple that were betrothed to be married the next day, and they're separated, you know, just before they're married, and they, you know, are missing for years from each other, but they search for each other, and they find each other again on their deathbed. Um, and so in, in the official version that scholars usually talk about, that's as far as we go. Connolly tells a story to Hawthorne and Longfellow. Hawthorne says, I don't want to write a story about that. Longfellow says, I do. Um, and then we have in Longfellow's journals, um, Longfellow trying to figure out, well, what are these people named? Uh, in the version that uh, Connolly told, as far as I can tell, there weren't names attached to anyone. And so Longfellow ends up calling the heroine, Evangeline, the hero, Gabriel. Um, but then he, he peoples the story with real people, including Rene LeBlanc. And so I think there's this interesting disconnect between, like, scholars try and be really careful about saying, well, certainly this is historically accurate, and certainly Longfellow made this up. Um, I think I would go, go, I would at least be bold enough to say Longfellow made up the name Evangeline for his main character. We know this because he was originally going to call her Gabrielle, and then he decides, no, it should be Celestine, you can tell there's, these are kind of heavenly names, right? Angelic and heavenly. But then he settles on Evangeline. Um, but um, it seems like, Brandon, your, your, uh, your family preserves kind of a, a more of a story of what Longfellow knew, who Longfellow talked to, uh, than often you'll find in the official sort of uh, Longfellow scholarship, um, which is, I think is really cool, right? The, the, the Acadians know <laughs> in, in ways that the Boston uh, historians don't. So um, what's the LeBlanc-Longfellow connection uh, that you've been able to, to uh, trace? So my understanding is that uh, so the Rene in, that's in the, in the poem uh, it was what it says he was. He was, the, mm -hmm. he was the notary there in town. He did have 20 children, uh, mm -hmm. two, oh two wives, his first wife. They had three, and she passed, and then they had 17 more, including oh a set of gosh. triplets. Um, so the, this idea that he had this huge, sprawling family is true. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, and I think there's even some lines later in the poem that talk about at his funeral, which I think takes place in Philadelphia or Boston in that play. Um, he looked, or, or, or not his funeral, sorry, his death, only, mm -hmm. only one of these hundred, at this point he has... All, he only can see one. Yeah. It's this kind of picture of the, what happened with the diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. That they were spread all over the place. And that's really very, very true. Uh, mm -hmm. my, my ancestor would have been his brother. They ended up in different places. Rene, I think, ended up in, in Massachusetts. Uh, my ancestor ended up, uh, the first one landed in um, Charleston. Then his son eventually makes his way to Louisiana. But my ancestor's brother had already gone to Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, many, uh, uh, Rene was one of, I think, 10 siblings himself. Or twelve, uh, some of them end up back in France. Some of them end mm -hmm. up in, in back in, in England. Mm -hmm. um, my Claude, my great seventh great grandfather, um, was one of s several writers and signers of a letter that they sent to the the governor of what was in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. um, basically asking for for asylum. Yeah, <laughs> like, please let us land and ta be taken in and, and be treated um, as basically as citizens, uh, even though at the time it was still. British territory, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, you have this kind of they just kind of landed where they landed. That that part yeah. is all very very accurate. Um, all throughout the Caribbean, I, there are other parts of the line of my descendants who aren't LeBlanc last name per se, but were part of this same diaspora with different French last names. They ended up in 
parts of the Caribbean. There's a, there's also some there's some port royals in the Caribbean too, mm -hmm. but um, that that uh, because those were French settlements uh, mm -hmm. to some extent, and so um, but many many make their way to Louisiana because it had been a French settlement. So there was yeah. a lot of, culturally there was already a lot of um, uh, things there that they could they could kind of jump right into a, or kind of quickly tie themselves into yeah. a community that existed. Um, and there's well, not the British threat in Louisiana. Yeah, in Louisiana, yeah. right. And so, um, uh, yeah, New Orleans is a major port city. There's lots of work. Mm -hmm. And then everything kind of east of that becomes Acadia. So New Orleans isn't really Acadia proper, but okay. but all of that kind of to the east of it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there are several parishes that kind of make up yeah. what's known as Acadia. And you'll, you'll see Acadian, like a flag that's Acadia, like all these things with... Um, that are very, very tied to this history, and they're very aware of it. They're Acadian festivals, and they um, are very aware of you know kind of being a displaced people. Mm -hmm. And then they end up the people in the South Louisiana who are still kind of like were kind of ignored for the yeah. most part. Um, and so that's why you get this whole different language, this this kind yeah. of Cajun French, which is not mm -hmm. exactly French, but French. And um, yeah, it's a very and we talked a little bit. You, they even transport and transpose certain things so there's the there renee is telling the kids about the uh um uh, the well i i pronounce it loop guru when the, i first read guru, it yeah the loop guru right the the yeah. forest um the forest you know boogeyman which would yeah. is some kind of creature uh that becomes the rougarou with an r in in south louisiana and is now no longer in the forests of nova scotia but in the swamps of louisiana <laughs> and it's this kind of uh some kind of cross between the the uh the the Bigfoot and the werewolf and the chupacabra, but it lives in the <laughs> but it lives in the uh, in the That's swamp. That's enough to keep me out of yeah, the swamp yeah. at night. So there's plenty of things, yeah, and it's you know it's used to tell you you know you don't behave. The ruru is going to come get you, and so um, they they even transport a lot of that kind of uh, folklore with them, mm -hmm. um, and it becomes part of the folklore of South Louisiana. So, yeah, and I you know I think Longfellow what, one of the big things that in the last, say, two decades has really fascinated people about Longfellow in the scholarly community is how he just was so voracious in gathering in um, various, like, um, lore and traditions and, like, cultures into this vision of America mm -hmm. that was just, you know, teeming with stories and teeming with, um, you know, many languages, many cultures. Um, you know, you have uh, you have papers written recently titled things like "Multicultural Longfellow," <laughs> um, but you know, multicultural not not in you know maybe the way that we would have thought about it, you know, in the '90s or or early 2000s. But like, Longfellow is interested in his American identity in relationship to what Europe has been. Not not in sort of a like I'm American I need to get rid of European influence but no European influence is here because we all ran here mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. the Acadians are here because you know they got kicked out of somewhere else this is the place of the exiles who try and preserve their cultures here and Longfellow really loved that about America um, and so you know sometimes Longfellow gets um, accused of being overly old world focused. Um, you know, there's sort of this conventional 20th century critical dismissal of Longfellow, like, oh, he's just mimicking Europe, whereas Whitman and Dickinson, they're doing something new. But I think Longfellow wouldn't have understood that distinction. Mm -hmm. He would have said, no, the European traditions are here, and yet the community 
and the communities and the cities, you know, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Boston, they, they are what they are because of the many European traditions that now have a home here. And that to him was important to recognize and be inspired by as an American writer. So it, I think it's more complicated than you either love Europe or you don't. Right. And that's what distinguishes you as either non-American or American. It was, it was much more complex and I think gracious and hospitable in a maximal sense for Longfellow. Yeah, that, uh, I noticed there's, um, I mean, obviously there's parts that look familiar to me when he gets into South Louisiana, but uh, he, he, he does seem to be trying to capture more of that expanse, too, as he talks about going upriver on the Mississippi, yeah. um, which obviously, you know, if, you, if you're listening and you're part of the parts of the Midwest, and, mm. and um, that's all part of that history, too, right? The fur yeah. trading that was going on all through those, those tributaries to, into the Mississippi, um, we end up in the Ozarks at one point. Yeah, and, um, yeah I, I've, I've often thought about uh, Evangeline as it's the closest Longfellow gets to a, like, odyssey or a even, like, exodus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. we know that Longfellow is reading Exodus as he was writing Evangeline. Um, and I don't know how w- what inspired the other, whether he started reading Exodus because he was thinking about exile or whether he, <laughs> you know... Uh, started thinking about Evangeline as an exile because he's reading Exodus, um, they're, they're mutually enforcing each other. But this, this idea of the journey through the wilderness to a new home, in, in yeah. that way, it's Aeneid, right? I think there's a lot of connections between Aeneid Book Two, uh, the, the burning of, of, uh, of Troy, and the end of Part One of Evangeline where Grand Prix burns um, mm. and the, you know, all the displaced Acadians are watching from the shore. Um, there's there's strong Aeneid things going on there. There's strong right, right. Uh, Exodus things going on there. Yeah, it's hard not to pull on those strings when they when they mirror so many things. Yeah. Uh, well, and Longfellow knew what he was doing, right? He, he was a voracious consumer of both classical literature and and modern literature. So he he knew the references he was making, yeah, yeah. Um, and and really delighted in them. I think. Yeah, yeah, and that and that Grand Prix. I, we talked about this, but I did look mm-hmm. there. By the time the diaspora, my family is spread out. They're in Port Royal. They're in Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Uh, several, a couple other cities, towns, um, and it was basically torched, you know, burned to the ground. Yeah. you can go there now, and there's there's structures mm-hmm. there again now. But those are mostly memorial. There's a lot. Yeah. They have a lot there. Probably made of stone, not wood. Yes, just, just in case stone, the English decide um, to. <laughs> and probably, in, and probably in large part due to. Uh, trying to capitalize on the fact that this was captured by Longfellow, right? In uh, poetically, yeah. Um, to, to kind of be a memorial, it makes sense to make then to make it a memorial space, um, but Port Royal still there, uh, you know that area is all still there, mm-hmm. um, and and then a lot of these, um, you know, at the time this included areas that was like Maine, which mm-hmm. you know you know that was not part of the of the colonies in the same way that it is now. So you have a lot of uh, still to this day a lot of people from those ancestries in in Maine. Um, uh, that kind of hid out or hung around yeah. or whatever it might be. Well, so that's curious. I hadn't thought of that connection because, you know, Longfellow's born and raised in Portland. At that time, Portland was part of Massachusetts, and then mm-hmm. Maine kind of gets carved out of, you know, northern Massachusetts. Um, but it's interesting to think that he w- he would have lived pretty close to mm-hmm. the people who end up settling there. There's also a question about, like, when is... Evangeline supposed to take place. We do have an official, like, historical date of, you know, the diaspora starting. 
uh, or the you know the expulsion happening. But there's a little bit of um, of historical fuzziness, which I think is intentional on Longfellow's part, where um, you know when they're leaving, as you mentioned, the American Revolution hasn't happened yet, mm-hmm. and yet towards the end of Evangeline, when Evangeline is moving through America, it sort of feels like America has been independent for a long time and has really the character of the North America of the Victorian age that he's right, writing in. Right. And so there's a little bit of a, you know, Evangeline is expelled from an old colonial world that knows not anything like America. Mm-hmm. And she ends up kind of in, in the future in a 19th century America that's welcoming mm-hmm. and that's the home of every exile. And, you know, th- there's a lot to say. You know, th- there are scholars who have interpreted uh, Evangeline as really a, a paradise lost mm. um, story, right? A Grand Prix is paradise. And um, uh, Evangeline is kind of like a, a guiltless Eve. Okay. Um, who ends up kind of finding paradise in Philadelphia. Um, and so America becomes this paradisic place um, that those who fall from the colonial imperial world to the new American democracy. Um, you know, I, you, you, could, you could argue here or there with it, but it's, it's been interpreted in, in sort of um, allegorical ways like that. Yeah, and certainly um, the, po- the poem... I think that's a fair. I think it's a fair. Whether you want to call it criticism or just a commentary on the poem, uh, it it displays, um, you know, the, the these uh, refugees landing in the various places and then being taken in by these cities, mm-hmm. um, which happened to varying degrees, right? How much yeah. they were actually welcomed into various places, and so they settle in the South Louisiana because there's nobody there. I mean, yeah. other than New Orleans, but and that's a French colony. Mm-hmm. Um, they end up in when they end up in the Caribbean. They're in French colonies, so it's a little bit easier mm-hmm. transition. But but no doubt there were places where that wasn't the case. I mean, yeah. you have um, my direct ancestors are French Catholics, um, but a lot of the pe- people in that area um, they they left. They were Huguenots. They they had left France oh, for the yeah. same reason, you know, for some of the same reli- religious reasons. Yeah. Um, and so they were uh, French Protestants. Um, and, and most of those people leaving, like my family, from that Normandy region, kind of on the coast, um, you know, there were, that's who settled most mm-hmm. of that, most of Nova Scotia, and so they all get treated as Catholics because they won't, yeah. they won't, um, because they won't swear allegiance to the British crown, yeah, which would be mean you have to not be Catholic, yeah. Um, and so, while well, a lot of them were, and many, many, many were Catholic there as well, they, they, you know, it may have even been the majority. There were also some who were who were Huguenots, but still didn't want yeah. to still yeah. didn't be British. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so, the, but then the Catholics they do land in areas that are predominantly, or some of the places predominantly non-Catholic. Yeah. Now, the ones who land in Boston are probably a little better off. The ones who yeah. land in in New York are probably a little better off. But the farther south they get on the coast, that's maybe tougher in many yeah. places. Um, until they get all the way around to the Gulf Coast and end up in, in what used to be, uh, you know, French territory. Yeah, you mentioned Charleston. I assume that would be not as not, yeah, not, not as, as much. So you go you go through Charleston. There's a lot of old churches, but not a lot of them are Catholic. Yeah, um, you have I think you have like third Presbyterian before you have a yeah. Catholic one. If you look on the plaques, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know that that's going to definitely play into it. So there's going to be um, that's going on all up and down the colonies. Are this way, the, you know. 
most people didn't like New York at the time because it was so Dutch and they were English. Yeah. You know, yeah. we forget about a lot of these things that, that we we tend to think of the colonies as, as kind of monolithic, and they were really, mm-hmm. re- really not. They really weren't up until the Civil War. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, Andrew Higgins has written about this. He's a contemporary scholar, um, and he, he has a paper where he looks at like the political climate of Philadelphia in the decades leading up to the publication of Evangeline, because Evangeline ends with Evangeline in Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. She's a Catholic nun, but she's working alongside the Quakers, and it's sort of this idyllic. And what Higgins says is, like, look, Philadelphia is the site of some of the most, like, vicious, like, Catholic versus Protestant violence Mm -hmm. in the 1800s. Um, You have street brawls over, you know, Catholics... And Protestants being uh, educated at schools where, you know, a Catholic teacher brings a, a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it. Right. And, you know, you end up with fist fights between the parents in the street. And so what Higgins argues is that, you know, far from Longfellow being like uh, saying America is perfect. Look at it. It's no, this is my vision of, a, of what America should be mm-hmm. as a contrast to the problems that that it's had and, and very much focused on Philadelphia. You need to be more like this interesting. than what you've been like. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there, there's some interesting, um, uh, yeah, maybe subtle political nudges toward, uh, tolerance and religious freedom <laughs> that, that Longfellow is making here. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Maybe maybe the city of brotherly love has always been a an uh, aspirational yes, moniker yes, that I Philadelphia so. has been trying to strive toward. Um, interesting. Well, I'd like to talk a, a little bit about the the poem itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't know enough about poetry, so uh, yeah. structurally, like, what, how what would you where does it fall on like type of poem and yeah. that kind of thing? It's so th- this is something that that different critics are going to give different accounts of. So, um, kind of the, the, what can we say about it? Well, it's a poem of, I think it's about 1300 lines, um, which makes it a long narrative poem. And yet, you know, it's, you know, in, in my version here, uh, this is the Dover version. It takes up, um, like 100 pages. 40, well, actually it's, it's even shorter. It's, it's just under 50 pages. Okay. Um, you know, you, you'll have longer versions that, you know, have bigger type, but um, it's 1300 lines, which is, you know, that's, that's about, um, that's about like two or three books of, of like the Iliad. Okay. Um, so it's certainly not epic length. If, if we're thinking of, you know, Divine Comedy, Iliad, uh, uh, Aeneid, Paradise Lost, it, it's in, it's in what has sometimes been called the Apillion, uh, or the short epic. Um, though I think it's long enough that I... It, it may it may kind of fall into that gray area between well it's not a sh- it's not a mini epic. <laughs> um, uh, Pope's Rape of the Lock would fit better into that. It's also that's also a spoof epic, um, but um, but it, it's it has epic aspirations. Um, okay. You have a you have the invocation of a muse uh, at the second section, which is uh, imitating Dante's uh, invocation of the muse as uh, at the beginning of Purgatorio. Um, and it's written in the Homeric Virgilian hexameter, 
Um, so, you know, if you read the opening lines, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight. So you have a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Very different in metrical structure than, say, you know, the major English epics that come before it, like Paradise Lost. Um, Right of man's first disobedience and of and the fruit of that forbidden tree. You have a da 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 disobedience. How do you pronounce that? Some, <laughs> some people argue, but you have a basic da 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 iambic pentameter rhythm. Totally different than Evangeline's da 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 da. That rhythm that he's using in English is intentionally Homeric, intentionally Virgilian, and he got a lot of flack for it. Um, people said, you can't do that. And he said, well, I did, and everyone likes it. So apparently it worked. Nice. He even actually liked to prove to himself that this was the right meter. He rewrites a scene um, in Evangeline. It's it's the scene where they're, um, they're on the Mississippi, and Evangeline is sort of looking at the beautiful birds and hearing this bird song. And he rewrites it in iambic pentameter just to see if it's better. And it's fine, like he's a good poet, but it's clearly not as lush and gorgeous as in the hexameter. And so Longfellow is really making a a controversial uh, poetic move here. Very few poems are written in hexameter um, in the the 19th century in America. And Longfellow has two of the most important ones, Evangeline and then later... um, uh, Courtship of Miles Standish. I think Elizabeth, which is a late short tale, um, is also written in hexameter, if I remember correctly. Um, but um, is Hi- is Hi- Hiawatha in Am- Hi- Hiawatha is in um, trochaic tetrameter. Da 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 da. Okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. you know uh, by the shores of Gitchigumi, by the shining big sea water, stood the forest of or stood the stood the wigwam of Nokomis. Um, very different in rhythm, and this is I think Longfellow's mastery. Longfellow could take a subject and he would find the right rhythmic mm-hmm. structure for it and just dive into it. Um, and so people would often make fun of Longfellow because his rhythms are so regular and so memorable, it's really easy to to parody them. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, you know, Poe is like this too. Um, and yet, he, he's, he's masterful at it. Um, so Evangeline, what can we say? It's a narrative poem in dactylic hexameter that has the structure of um, the Aeneid um, in as much as it's about a... Um, a people who live on uh, in sort of, I don't know, peace and harmony, who are beset by war, who are exiled from their place of living, and who search for a homeland. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, it's also not like the Aeneid, because it doesn't focus primarily on, you know, we need to found Rome. It's one woman's tale of trying to find a home as it exists in her fiancé, Gabriel, who she's been separated from. Um, she ends up finding a home in Philadelphia, but she wasn't looking for a, founding a city like Aeneas's. She's, right. she's looking for that potential husband. Now, it's interesting. She becomes a nun along the way, and a lot of a lot of people have puzzled over this. Like, if you become a nun, but you're searching for your long-lost fiancé, aren't you kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, at cross-purposes? I write a lot about this in my book. I won't, I won't uh, sort of remake my argument, but... Um, I, I think that I think that um, we have both a spiritual quest going on in Evangeline and a romantic quest, mm-hmm. and this uh, the fundamental tension of the poem 
um, is how one can um, uh, harmonize uh, one's personal romantic quest, you know, trying to be with the one you love, mm-hmm. with the with the larger spiritual quest, especially of um, a Roman Catholic uh, spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this all throughout the poem. Um, Father Felician, who's the um, kind of spiritual mentor and guide of Evangeline, both before the exile and in the exile. I think uh, prov- he's the character who provides sort of a theological interpretation of uh, Evangeline's uh, romantic quest. And there's a lot to say there. Yeah, I could go off on it a lot. Yeah. But that's what's going on in the poem. Um, it ends sad, um, and yet there's a satisfaction and fulfillment by the end. So if you haven't read the poem, I won't tell you all of what happens. Does Evangeline find Gabriel? Um, if, you're, if you're looking forward to a grand uh, kind of Jane Austen ending, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> and yet there's some closure. I'll say that. I, uh, yeah... That's interesting because, I mean, obviously that's there. There would be a lot of question about that, right? If you're mm-hmm. studying this poem, um, but then there's, and I think there's a lot to be said about the kind of the dual searches. Um, but there's also this. Uh, there's a little bit of a practical element to that. That she's she is betrothed to him. Yeah. Um, so she she wouldn't want to break that vow either. No. And and we're we're told that a lot of the other young men are being pushed on her, right? Yeah. Uh, which also would not be that surprising, right? You yeah. have this diaspora of people, yeah. this culture that's in... So whoever's around, you should be marrying and having babies if you want yeah. to keep the culture yeah, alive, right? And so it's not surprising that the, that the, that the community would be, would be saying, hey, you're like beautiful and young and yeah. <laughs> all these young men who need wives. And so um, th- this is not surprising. But um, it, it, is a, it is an interesting... Uh, Thing that Longfellow's playing with there, mm-hmm. and so um, I, I, I hadn't thought specifically of Virgil, but I think that makes the most sense um, as far as a comparison. But like you said, with all these very, very different, the different ends. Um, uh, but certainly in the in in both the Homeric and the Vir- Virgilian mm-hmm. um, uh, tradition of finding home, right, mm-hmm. which you get in the Odyssey and you get in the uh, Iliad, yeah. I mean, in the um, Needed, but for in different ways, they're finding yeah. home in different ways, returning yeah. home and finding it, finding a new one. And in this case, having to find some place to go as a refugee, which yeah. I think is a new a new twist in some ways. Yeah. Um, on that story, and except for that, you're probably also drawing on things like we mentioned the yeah. the, the stories from scripture of of yeah. the Israelites and yeah. uh, more than once of the Israelites. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so it's a it's a fascinating thing he's doing here. Um, and then coming back to what we talked about earlier, presenting America as this place as maybe he's presenting it idyllic, yeah. But this is the home. This is the place, right? The shining yeah. hill. The you know, yeah. this is the place that all refugees can come, yeah, uh, and find a new home and keep their and, and bring blend their culture in in some yeah. ways, um, which I, is very interesting and very distinct from as you talked about the poets who come in the next generation who are really yeah. wanting to have this very distinct American whatever voice or, yeah. or imagery, um, Longfellow seems to be preserving this idea of nowhere the cultures come with us. Yeah. So to, to a large extent. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think if we look at um if we look at uh the middle of Evangeline part part the second, um, where he calls on the muse. Um mm-hmm. He says, um, let me essay, O muse, to follow the wanderer's footsteps, 
not through each devious path, each changeful year of existence, but as a traveler follows a streamlet's course through the valley, far from its margins at times, and seeing the gleam of its water here and there in some open space and at intervals only, then drawing near its banks through sylvan glooms that conceal it, though he behold it not, he can hear its continuous murmur, happy at length if he find the spot where it reaches an outlet. He gets carried away with that metaphor. <laughs> but um, that, like, let me essay, let me try, let me attempt, O Muse, to follow the wanderer's footsteps, right? The wanderers of Angelin, the wanderer, in another sense, is all exiled people searching for a home. Um, that's very different than I celebrate myself and sing myself. Right, right, right. Which, um, you know, within uh, eight years of the publication of Evangeline, um, Walt Whitman will will publish Song of Myself, the first version huh. of 1955. Um, so the fact that you have... Um, the, uh, this, like, I will sing with the muse's help of the wanderer, um, contrasted with the I will sing of myself. Yeah. And there is no muse's help. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. These are different views of sort of the, the proper role of the bard, a proper role of the poet, proper yeah, role of the singer yeah. in American culture. And that contrast, I think, is is really fascinating. Um, I betray, perhaps, my... Um, my uh, <laughs> preference uh, by my interest in Longfellow. I, I like Whitman. He's fine. Uh, very talented guy. Uh, I think you're on safe ground in a, an audience of classical yeah, education yeah. <laughs> uh, aficionados um, that the, uh, uh, John Hodges, who's on the show sometimes and is a, you know, a composer and speaks often at Cersei conferences on art and music, the very first year I ever went to a Cersei conference, and he was he was quoting someone else, but talking about said that you can trace the history of art from um, uh, what is it, it was like uh, this is for God or yeah. this is for the or this is for Rome or this is for you know yeah. uh, artist unknown yeah. to uh, this is me yeah and the the, the yeah. artist's name right like yeah. that's like this trajectory right um, and so. Um, yeah, there was there was much less concern about the the, the artist himself yeah. being the being the artifact, but um, so that's um, yeah I, I find that really fascinating I, and I, I, I enjoyed digging into it more. Um, we've been going a while on Evangeline, um, but I wanted to switch gears just for a second because you yeah. brought something to my attention that I was not aware of. Yeah. Um, well, I was partly because I hadn't really thought much about what he did as a day job, mm-hmm. um, but that he, you know, he he was a, a, a professor, and among other things, at, at Harvard, and gave a lecture called "Lives of Literary Men," which I, I know I've heard referenced before, but didn't know much about. Uh, but there's a section in particular where he addresses some things about education mm-hmm. that I thought uh, were interesting. Um, I'm going to read just. Uh, read this quickly for those who might not have it in front of them and then uh, you but you've been spending a lot of time with this I'd like to hear your mm-hmm. thoughts on it um, it says different characters of books some instruct us others educate us differences between instruction and education in themselves and in their effects learning is the result of instruction wisdom the result of education there there are learned men who are not wise and wise men who are not learned and so of books, some make us learned, others wise, some fill the mind with instruction, others develop its powers and resources, and it is filled with wisdom. Instruction is the material, wisdom is the result of the mind's operation on that material. And mm-hmm. he goes into a few other things mm-hmm. there, um, and then he wraps with 
The books then that educate us I prize more highly than those which are merely instruct. Books which excite and develop our minds, which call forth energies in us, of whose existence we hardly dream, which open us to new realms of thought and whisper to our souls, ye too are denizens of these fair lands. Such books are to be our bosom friends. Mm. Um, and, and he does some things in here which I think are interesting. The part I skipped over, you know, talking about the intention of the author. Um, but he's talking about somewhat how we should judge books and art, but then mm-hmm. also the nature of education. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've wrestled with this, and I know you yeah. talked to some other folks around here, some of the other professors talking about it. But Yeah, you know, I think this this is one of the you know, the big whys of education. If education is the passing on of a set of facts mm. from one generation to the next, um, or even the passing on of a set of facts from the experts to the amateurs so that, you know, having gained those facts, the experts will now be amateur, then th- that seems to fit with this idea of instruction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, can, we can get instructed... Um, and then be instructed people. We can have the materials. Um, But Longfellow, as a wise man as he was, said, look, we're not going for mere instruction. We're not going for mere, you know, taking of things I think or facts I know and putting them in your mind. We want to be wise. Um, And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that being uh, a college educator, you always have to check yourself. Um, Am I just instructing people in the facts that most people don't know because they haven't read all the details, um, whether it's about literary history or theology or or even the history of education, Um, or am I encouraging them to to seek wisdom, um, to develop the mind's powers and resources? Um, That's a, well, it's, it's thinking more about the mind itself and the health of the mind than it is thinking about the, the material that the mind thinks about. Um, if you don't know how to think, you're not going to know what to do, even with the best information. Um, and, you know, Longfellow is interesting. The, the opening of this section that you read, it starts like lecture notes, but by the last paragraph, he's become full-fledged waxing <laughs> eloquent. Um, Books that educate us, us, I prize more highly than those which merely instruct. Books which excite and develop our minds, which call forth energies in us, of whose existence we hardly dream. This, like, a a book that could reveal more about who you are to you um, and reveal that you belong to the land in which it inhabits. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I, I most want to pass on, especially when I, when I teach high schoolers, is, like, these great books, whether it's the Odyssey or whether it's Wendell Berry or whether it's Longfellow or whether it's, you know, Pascal, like these aren't books by people who have nothing to do with you about things that have nothing to do with you. These are things about you, mm. right? Your, and you could, you could make this overly individualistic, but I don't think it is, right? When Pascal is writing about, you know, um, you must wager, he's not talking to someone else. He's talking to you when, you know, uh, Longfellow is speaking of the wanderer. He's talking about you as much as he's talking about Evangeline, in as much as your humanity connects you to these people. And that the great books, those that educate, are the ones that, um, that connect us to humanity in the ways that we continually forget. Right? Chesterton says that we, um, 
We do the same things over and over again because we're always forgetting. Um, we, we, liturgy is like that, right? We pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again because we need to be reminded of it, <laughs> even if we have it memorized, especially if we have it memorized. Right. Uh, because for one great moment, Chesterton says, we will remember that we have forgotten. Um, this is from Chesterton's Crazy Tale, one of my favorite uh, Chesterton. We're not talking about Chesterton, <laughs> but he's right about all these things too. So, you know, Longfellow sometimes, I think, can feel a little simplistic and grandfatherly in a um, naive way, but he, he really thought about these things and really struggled with, am I giving my students the books that will educate them yeah. and that will be morally improving? You know, one of the things he's worried about is, I don't want to give you a book that's technically well-written, but is corrupting your soul. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, this is all, this is a huge fight in literary circles, yes. you know. Uh, but I think the most important thing I take away from this is he wants education to not be about the passing on of facts. But, you know, like, like Lewis says, the kindling of the flame and the welcoming you, welcoming of the reader into the community of humanity that, that spans the ages um, mm-hmm. where time disappears. You know, yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois says, you know, when I, when I read the classics, they are my brothers. Mm-hmm. They do not mm-hmm. exclude me. Um, I'm welcomed by them into the family of humanity. Um, and I don't know. That's, that's that is a thing fascinating turn of phrase in Du Bois when he's talking yeah. about comparing that to how he's experiencing life as a black man in, in, yeah. uh, in his time period. And so, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, the part, the part I skipped over was just that part about, listen, there's, there are multiple ways to, uh, to assess whether something's good art, good work. Is yeah. it, is it a good, technically good version of a, you know, uh, of an epic or of a ballad? Mm-hmm. Um, but then he goes on to say, but there's a, the higher standard is something, is it morally corrupt? You know, yeah. It, yeah. And, and he talks about things that are disgusting on like these, some of these beautiful sculptures, let's say mm-hmm. from, from antiquity. Yeah. He struggled with classical yeah. art, art and literature in general. Cause he's like, this is pagan and yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. just obscene. Right. And yet it's beautiful. Right. So I, th- I mean, I think you could read just this section come away. Like you said, sometimes he's, mm-hmm. he's criticized for being kind of fuddy duddy and grandfatherly Yeah. because here he's stating it pretty starkly. Yeah. But then, if you read his own works, it's clear that he's influenced by the works of, of yeah. Homer and Virgil, and he, so he had that ability to say, "Okay, there's some I can see, I can draw out what's good there and leave the draw side," which is what yeah. we want to do in classical education all the yeah. time. Yeah. But it's fine. It's fun to find Longfellow as a um, as a uh, a brother in that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, nearly two centuries ago, and so, um, or maybe more than two centuries yeah. ago. Um, that that's the work, right? That's the yeah. work of, and but there 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 is a more a higher standard we do have to judge by, and we do have to look at works and go, mm-hmm. this is technically fantastic writing, mm-hmm. but it's so nihilistic, or it's mm-hmm. so it's so mm-hmm. you know that it's not. We shouldn't we shouldn't put it in front of us. We shouldn't have, yeah. We shouldn't keep reading it ourselves, yeah. right? Um, or or if we do approach it, we need to approach it with our with our guard up. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Uh, we we need to wrestle with Nietzsche, but we shouldn't. Read Nietzsche, sort of open to. I think he's probably right, so I'll yeah, read him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and, and you know, when when do you put it in front? Yeah, of and all yeah. those kind of things, right? Yeah. There's a there's a lot. Of, that's the nuance of it. Yeah, um, that, of what he's stating here starkly. But I think it's this was fascinating to read. I'm, I'm curious to read the rest of the, the rest of the lecture, actually, um, lives of literary men. But um, yeah, you'll have, the, you can find it in his handwriting on the Houghton library website. If you dig enough. Oh, mercy. Um, I oh, think, nice. I, I think 
I wouldn't be surprised if I'm the only person who's transcribed any of it. Um, because uh, Longfellow's Lectures, if anyone's listening out there who wants to do a master's or PhD thesis on Longfellow, <laughs> Longfellow's Lectures are, are almost wholly un, unexplored. So there, there you go. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. Chal- the gauntlet is thrown down for someone out there. Um, I know you've got to run. I yeah. wanted to give you just uh, you know just a second to... You know, when we do have some folks on from the college, we like to talk a little bit about the program. Full yeah. disclosure, my son is currently a freshman in the program, so I'm a big fan. But uh, if if you wanted to say, you know, quickly to people out there yeah. who have students, you know, what would you tell them about yeah. St. Constantine's So I guess college? it's my, my elevator pitch. You know, St. Constantine uh, College is... We like to describe ourselves as classical orthodox undergraduate education. Um, we're classical in that we believe that there are classics, that they exist, that they're identifiable, and that they are the best things to study in order to become wise. Um, so if you are in our program from year one to year two, you read um, in, in an interdisciplinary uh, setting classics from Genesis and the Iliad all the way up through W.B. Du Bois, uh, Martin Luther King, Flannery O'Connor, um, basically seeing the grounding of um, world Christianity, of uh, Western culture, of um, English and American culture, um, but also looking at Eastern Christian cultures. We, we spend a lot of time, given that we have an Orthodox heritage, in looking at the Russian tradition, at the you know, Syrian traditions, at the Greek traditions, um, and, try and try and give students a grounding in the best that has been thought and said um, as their introduction to liberal arts at the undergraduate level. We also approach mathematics and science in a classical way. So we uh, we do the uh, geometry and astronomy um, sequence uh, in the quadrivial arts that supplement our readings in uh, philosophy, history, theology, um, uh, literature. Um, and then in our upper division years, uh, we have a major in great texts of the Christian tradition where we really dig into the ancient uh, classics surrounding Plato and the Gospel of John, into medieval classics with Beowulf and Dante, and then into the more modern English classics with a focus on Shakespeare. And then our students write a senior thesis where they pick a um, pick any author from the tradition uh, to spend a whole semester uh, researching and writing a thesis on. Uh, we also have an Orthodox Christian Studies major for our juniors and seniors if they really want to dig into theology, uh, especially with an Eastern Christian focus. Um, all of our courses uh, are great books focused. We Textbooks, uh, you won't find many around here. Uh, we want to read the best books. Um, we want to study them um, with seriousness as scholars, but also uh, with ethical and, and spiritual care as Christians. Um, we're an we're a Orthodox community that hosts anyone who wants to come study. We're going to talk about Jesus and read the scriptures a lot, but anyone who wants to come and study in this way, to study the liberal arts as they were meant to be studied at the collegiate level, uh, we invite uh, to, to join us. So that, that's, that's my pitch. All right. Well, thanks to Dr. Bartell for joining us. Uh, thank you all for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Systems of Learning Doug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. You can send your comments and questions to podcast at searcyinstitute.org. Join us next week for another episode, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Searcy Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Shortly after I recorded this episode with Dr. Bartell, the decision was made to discontinue the Quiddity Podcast. So this will be the last episode. A new Cersei podcast is in the works, so be on the lookout for details in the coming months. Before I sign off, for the last time, I want to thank all the guests that have joined me. In particular, I'd like to thank two experts who agreed to be a part of regular features on Quiddity, the music man John Hodges and poet Christine Perrin. Both of you are true masters of your craft, not only creating art but teaching it to others. 
I met you both at my first Cersei conference, and you've been educating and encouraging me ever since. I know I speak for the audience when I say thank you for sharing your wisdom with us over the last 18 months. And last but not least, I want to thank everyone who has been listening and giving feedback for the last year and a half. Thank you for joining me and Cersei on this journey of inquiry. If you haven't done so already, please check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network and many other resources at CerseiInstitute.org. Thank you and goodbye.